All right, millennial history, take one. No. Um, <laughs> Andrea Futz is born in 1989, which makes her a millennial. It's also a pivotal year for European history, but more on that later. Andrea is the artistic director of Resonate Productions, the world's only creator of musical journalism. She's been making documentary concerts and podcasts, combined with in-depth journalism and storytelling, and, of course, a lot of original music. She divides her time between the Low Countries, Germany, and Greece. Oh, and she studies philosophy and plays the harp really well. So, European and an artist. We're here to review the process of making Millennial History, a series created by Andrea and Luke Dean. They made it through Resonate Productions and it was co-produced by Are We Europe? Because, um, well, the combination of music, podcasts, and journalism was music to our ears. Okay, Andrea, so glad to have you here. Thank you. Starting off, this series, for those that have finished it or that still want to start it or that listen to one or two episodes, it is about recent world history, as you put it, told by millennials who were there when it happened. I immediately have Hamilton references in my head, but let's leave that to be. <laughs> and it takes the form of musical journalism, which we'll explore in a bit, but... Going back, what are millennials and do you identify as one? Yeah, so they say millennials are people born between 1980 and 2000. So I'm exactly in the middle. You have groups of millennials. The one from the early 80s are geriatric millennials. I think I'm a normal one. And then you have young millennials as well. So yes, I identify as one. Cool. And what makes a millennial a millennial? And... Well, maybe, maybe t going, going back, actually, tying it to the historical approach or the history that this series portrays. What do historical events say about a generation, about generational identity? Why did you want to explore recent European history? I think the beginning was because the cliches about the millennials in Western Europe are so strong. We have no spying, we are spoiled, we have lived nothing in our lives, we have not had to fight for anything in our lives yet. And that's only true when you look at a very little group of privileged countries in Western Europe. And for the rest of the world, or the rest of Europe even, a lot more happened that needs to be overcome. And I think now it's a good time to do it. And also we're taking over positions of power now in the society. We are not 20 anymore. So I think it's a good moment to look at this generation now with some sort of uh, gravity also. And acknowledged that our lives started at the shift of history when the wall of Berlin came down. So what did that do, actually? We think maybe that we've had relative peace in Europe since then. But that's, again, only the case when you look at a few centralized states. And there's so much more to uncover there. And they have a lot to teach us about a lot of power and drive and resilience and forging a whole new society when you have inherited a bunch of shit from your parents. And this is the case in many countries. And it's up to us to do it now. So I wanted to look at this. And it started because I have a lot of international friends and I always remember small details from people. 
So I remember that somebody gets upset about a mafia poster. Somehow I knew, okay, this friend of mine came from this orphanage in Romania. We're not going to talk about it at a party, but I want to know. So that also sparked my interest. We are all the same age, but from what a different ideologies and worlds do we come without even having to travel? So you mentioned the fall of the wall. Um, could you walk us through some of the events you portrayed and why you chose them? Yes. Or maybe walk us through the series. Yeah, yeah let's do it. So the why is most of all my friends. <laughs> there is not, I was not particularly interested in the troubles in Northern Ireland, in the mafia on Sicily. I just saw these tiny reactions in my friends that I knew came from these places that I just got interested in them, basically, more than in political developments, historic developments. I, I, I can't really be bothered somehow about that. So the first one is my friend Aki. And he lived behind the highway where the mafia blew up anti-mafia judge Giovanni Falcone in 1992. So that was a massive explosion that for him was the start of his political conscience. That was the moment he says he knew there is a society. And he was very upset in Holland, in Amsterdam, that people were joking with mafia the whole time. And the tagline from this episode is, yeah, but The Godfather is a fucking movie. People are not naive. People are ignorant. And that's exactly what organized crime needs to prosper. So he gave a very a wonderful interview short and nice and it was already four years ago that we recorded it so we work slow and diligently and it gets more complicated with every episode we've made so that was about mafia and since then of course in the netherlands uh, so sicily yeah as a location and yeah. maf in the mafia yeah is, uh, it's the topic yeah topic, this yeah. attack on the judge that managed to put hundreds of mafiosi behind bars and knew he would die for it. And he did it anyway. And also just this fact that you blow up a whole highway when a whole convoy is going over it. It's like like theater. Like, how, how did they manage to do that? So that was the first, about organized crime, undermining, that learning that being naive is not the same as being ignorant, because being ignorant is a choice. And I think a lot of the conversations, what I want to do with them is show that it's really easy to be interested in other people and to just give people the opening to start talking about things that are important to them and that are relevant to the world that we live in. You just need a setting and a bit of an openness and a bit of time to start doing that. And I don't understand why that happens so little, even in international communities, in international big cities. What Aki also said, I would be glad if somebody would ask me a question about mafia that's real, that's connected to reality. So I want to somehow lead by example with this series on how easy it is to actually get those talks going. So that was... Yeah, so Sicily and the Mafia. Yeah. The troubles in Ireland, the identitarian conflict between the Protestants and the Catholics. I went to Ireland myself and I thought these interviews would be about what it means again to grow up amongst violence. But because it's an active conflict and everything is on edge because of Brexit, nobody was allowed to talk about this. Because whatever they say can be traced back to their families and to paramilitary and to God knows what kind of things. So um, I always have a basic question list for millennial history 
that I use. And of course, I prepare, but I don't know a lot of things. I really start from zero, as though I would be sitting in a cafe with you having a first conversation. So I was a bit taken aback in Ireland, of course, when it turned out that we can't talk about the thing I thought we could talk about. Instead, they opened up about colonialism, which I, as a European, had never thought about that within Europe that's also happening and has happened and influences so much of domestic relations uh, nowadays and how it creeps up in every little detail of society, in colors, in markers, in questions, in the way people relate to each other. And that's what the episodes became about. And then came Romania. I knew my friend Joanna was adopted from Romania when she was four. She came from one of these uh, orphanages of Ceausescu. Ceausescu really had one of the most nasty dictatorships of communism. It was kind of a mix between the handmade steel, the Hunger Games and North Korea. So women had to have children and you couldn't have an abortion. And if you had six children, you were like a female hero. But at the same time, there was no food, no medicines, and a massive scarcity of everything in the country. So it was really a struggle to survive. And all of the Romanian millennials I have met feel that they are unwanted children. They feel that they had to be born, that there was no choice, that they had to come into this world. And this is something that totally changes your whole system. How do you start to build your own life when there were so many attachment problems, problems with the parents, problems with parents not being able to take good care of the children? And of course, that is all becomes very clear in a setting of an orphanage where you have two women taking care of 200 children. So the kids from the orphanages in Romania are famous for often not being touched for long, long periods of time, not being spoken to, not developing language, developing very difficult patterns that are really hard to break. And Joanna was adopted when she was four, which is exceptional because normally people adopt cute babies, not four-year-olds. She was adopted to America and her story completely lines up with the story of Katinka, who is also Romanian, but lived her whole life with her parents, with her mother and her grandparents in Romania. And they tell the same story. And that was a crazy coincidence. It shows how important these first four years of life are. And it's a few episodes about the difference between surviving and living. Romania was very, very impressive for me to make. Maybe, maybe we can talk about that later. That would take quite far. And then the final one was uh, Eastern Germany. I wanted to understand, and maybe that's because I live in Greece a lot of the time, and in Greece there is more communism somehow. I am Dutch, grew up in Belgium. I've never been in touch with communism or people that identify as communists or anything like that. And in Greece, many more. So these ideas came to me from the age of 22, 23 on. And that's why suddenly... When I lived in Berlin, I asked, how did they do it? Just like change ideology within a few months in the 90s. And then I found a few Eastern German friends that I wanted to talk about this shift in ideology. They call it change and unification of Germany. The question is, what was unified? And is it really unified? And 
the most amazing thing I found out, we spoke to four Eastern German millennials, is that most of them didn't remember the fall of the wall as a happy event. They remembered it as something really worrisome because they saw their parents so worried. And also because the citizens of the DDR in general wanted to reform their own country. There wasn't a big wish to be uh, connected to the West. They had their own culture, they had their own state, they had their own cultural concepts that suddenly had to be changed. And that was so beautiful also that I, within one phone call, I was sitting in Amsterdam on a table with four Eastern Germans. And we had ample of time to talk about these things as though we were in Greece somehow. So no agenda. We take care of each other. There is time. We have fun. We laugh in a way that is very familiar to me. So you feel that this culture of sharing and taking care of each other and being there and being a bit more flexible in your time is still alive, even though that country doesn't exist anymore. Wow. <laughs> I love how you already, yeah, you speak about these events almost as if you were, you were there. And in a way, you were because you spoke to these people that, that were there, even though they might have been small or, as you said, they remember it through experiencing their parents' stress or their emotions. Yeah, I can listen to this, this forever. But, <laughs> but so to recap, uh, for those who haven't listened to the series, but... I want to dive into all of these. I have so many questions already that I would want to go into. But first, in the stories you mentioned, quite serious events. Uh, you mentioned fear, highway bombings, dictatorships, troubles and sectarian violence. A lot has been written and talked about it by other people. So why did you want to approach these kind of serious world-changing or, or continent-changing events through musical history? Why, why did music come up as the right medium almost to portray these emotions combined, of course, with journalism? How did you, how did you feel or why did you feel that these serious topics, that, that music was a way to approach it? Yeah. In millennial history, I only interview based on something that's called the deep story. The story as the interviewees felt it because at the time of the events, they were between zero and 12, 13 years old. So they were very young. A young child is not going to give you an academic dissertation about the sectarian groups in Northern Ireland and the paramilitary that was active. I wouldn't want to make a show like that either. I'm interested in your blueprint. And you might have never articulated your blueprint, your normality to anyone else before because in your home country you all share the blueprint somehow so why bother asking about it sometimes you need an outsider for that and also because i'm just fascinated by that by how those early years shape your normality your lens of looking at the world and your own society and in this deep story the story as you felt it when you were young even sometimes before there were words to categorize your memories on that level, music is just very helpful <laughs> because we are not proving any point here. <laughs> we, are, we are not making a logical line of arguments or debates of who was right and wrong. No, for you, this was reality. This was how you felt it. And I'm listening to you now. So I'm going to do everything in my power to honor that experience and also to transform it into something new by virtue of composing new music to it 
in the way that we ask uh, 60 bands and musicians from all these countries donated their music in order to help us tell this story. And I think they donated because they care. What we always see with musical journalism is that if you take away the music, the topics are way too heavy, way too abstract. And and then something magical happens because we, we curate the music, of course, in a way that it says what I want to say with it, what Luke wants to say with it. We make sure that it colors the words that are being said and it brings out all these voices beyond the words and it brings out something that's very emotional in the story, but also very subliminal. What I always feel is that it makes you feel carried as a listener, so carried that we can go very deep. You say musical journalism. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not about the music itself. The music serve as a as a guiding force, as as you said, like a curation of emotions of stories, but the stories themselves stand alone and it's not completely connected, right? So is there a difference between music journalism? Yeah, it's not totally. about the music, it's, yes. it's musical journalism. I'm so yeah. happy that you get this. Yeah, totally. It is journalism through music. So it's unified. It unifies in my head. It unifies in the people that I work with. We make our own journalism, our own interviews, our own dramaturgy, our own stories, combined with original music that we curate and compose and perform and play. And that's why, because of the power of what the music can do, it's always about emotional blind spots in society. So things that are relevant for many people, but we can't really put a finger on it yet. And it takes me years to make projects. Uh, millennial history, four years. So in general, it took yeah. us one year to do one story. <laughs> also, it got out of hand, of course, because Luke and Nick started this because we wanted to try to make a podcast. And the first one was Sicily, and that has 25 layers of sound added. And with Eastern Germany, in the end, we had 185 layers of sound added. <laughs> so we also <laughs> learned on the go how this was going. Um, Literally layered up. Yeah, you, it layered up along. literally yeah, yeah. quite extremely, quite extremely um, as we did this. Yeah. So you mentioned 108? 180. 180 layers. layers of journalism in the in the episodes about yeah. Germany. Yeah. So if you listen to this, if you listen to the episode right after this, try to find that. Try to find all those layers of all the sound design and all the music and all the things coming together because it really, really shows the amount of detail and work when they're making these stories. Also with thanks to the amazing producers at RB Europe here wow. that trained with the best radio makers and we were so happy to just bam, get that level of feedback without having to go five years to radio school. You you did mention, and I really love that, that approach where you say, well, I started off asking you like, wow, these are serious events, <laughs> big things that literally changed the course of history and you want to approach it with or guided by musical journalism. But then I love your answer, which was, well, otherwise it's way too abstract and way too big. And you need a hook. You need to find the right chord almost. You need to find the right chord progression maybe. Yeah. So it's also almost like I listen to these episodes and they almost feel like a composition within itself because it starts off with some anecdotes and stories here. It goes back to it. It, it returns to it. You have the music coming in. So it's also a, a composition by itself. Yeah, episodes. totally, totally. Yes, oh yeah. And that's, of course, because me and Luke are musicians. Yeah. And Luke is even a composer. So we are 
trained and wired for 20 years of studying to work with sound, sound quality, notes, chords, what they do. But I'm a musical journalist, so I combine it with things that are being said. <laughs> but of course, I bring all of this this experience to the table and yeah. look as well, because I'm a trained classical harpist, if you believe it or not. <laughs> That's what I, I actually do. studied. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, but did, did it, like I just made that analogy, and I know we spoke about it before, but did it feel almost like the same process as approaching to learn to play a piece on the harp or for Luke to compose something yeah. that, that, that sort of building a storyline yeah. as you went along, obviously getting inspiration and talking to a lot of people and getting the stories in, but did it feel almost comparable to, to writing music or learning new music? For Luke, definitely. So he could work on this for a maximum of two and a half hours per day. And then he had to tell me that I'm actually creatively drained <laughs> he could compose for himself without words for hours per day but making this two and a half hours max i for example can puzzle with quotes for hours per day but i can't really play music for hours per day so it's really interesting to learn how how we both tick in general in teams it's nice to know how people tick and what drains them and what not but yeah it's definitely a creative process. Also because we are the only musical journalism in the world. So nobody can tell me when I'm off or when I'm doing something that's not allowed or whatever. I don't have that problem. It just needs to meet my standards and Luke's standards. And I don't have an editor on my shoulder that says it needs to be shorter. like this, shorter, this yeah. or that. Yeah. So it took its own course. Yeah, we have hours of tape. An interview would easily be for five, six hours. <laughs> and uh, that's again because I'm a bit impractical in this way. <laughs> and I don't have an editor on my shoulder that says yeah. I need to, to make it shorter. But I think this given that you have as much time as it takes to bring it to the surface is really important. I wouldn't want to work in any other way. And often I felt that all the beautiful things happen at the end. Also when people are a bit tired and they don't really know what they're saying anymore and the fences are a bit more mm -hmm. down. I think Nick van der Kolk from Love Vine Radio also uses this. He says we just exhaust the people we talk to. And <laughs> with, of course, the trust that they may alter anything in the final edit. I give people that right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So talk about gaining their trust and that was also going to be my question mm. like how did you embed yourselves into this community how did you get these stories out of them because they feel so raw and personal <laughs> at, at, at points like yeah you must have had an amazing connection with your friends of course but your friends were, were often the way in yeah. to a community right yeah. and as you said like the musicians were part of the community too yeah. you would literally find them on the island of sicily <laughs> or vice versa how did that process go like how did you like, was it really, hey, I'm just going to record this interview with you and we'll see where it comes? Or was it, did you look for specific angles into each story, of course? No, it was really quite happy-go-lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I have, Point of shoot, I have no yeah. other, I have no, no better way of saying it. Just that I am a firm believer in the fact that interesting people, good people, beautiful people, know other very nice people. 
it's not important. It's just fun. Like I always fall a bit in love with everyone that I interview <laughs> with. Yeah, easily, easily, because I spend months with you in my ears. So I have a very big wish to kind of put every person on the little pedestal and put glitter and an aura and uh, pearls around them somehow to make them really shine. To and and that might be very unjournalistic, but. It's, it feels very loving also, somehow, doing this effort. Most of all, because all these interviewees don't have, they don't have an agenda. They don't have anything to sell. They are not historians that need to sell their books. They are not academics or opinion makers that need to say, look at me and what I think about this horrible trauma that happened to me, blah, blah, blah. No, they didn't think they had anything to say. Mm. And then we ended up speaking for six hours. Because you happen to be at a certain age, at a certain place that I think makes you worth listening to. And did you use music to spark their own memory or imagination almost? Like it was not, music was not a, a, a talking point. No, never. No. Even though half of the people, no. <laughs> How many? Let me count for a second. Mm -hmm. One, two. We have nine interviewees of which... Uh, seven are musicians and two are not True. but we don't yeah. talk about this what even happened is that some musicians it would be logical that if i interview aki from sicily who is a fantastic jazz pianist film music composer it would be logical to ask for his own music and he said no because my own music is detached from this historic event with the mafia and i don't want it to be linked to this and that response i understand it so well that put me on the path of finding out everything about the music culture of a country and asking from 15 bands per episode so that they could give their song they know the story they have their own memories but they don't have to talk about it and then we puzzle it together in a way that makes sense it's really a patchwork of musical culture almost musical identities interwoven on these storylines i that learned you so say, much yeah. about i found so much good music in corners of europe so we also have a spotify list where you can find all the songs together and um yeah i mean the music world is a music industry like any other industry 95% of the music in the world is English spoken, is uh, two chords, is a lot already with whom all the songs of the world are made. So when you listen to the songs that we have put in place here, you hear something completely different. Yeah. That is still also a young and modern sound of Europe. I, um, I listened to the episode of Northern Ireland and the Troubles when I was there myself. So I was walking around in Derry, Londonderry, while listening to these two episodes. And the stories about soldiers walking through the gardens and communities split apart, being split apart, it really came to life before my eyes almost. And that's, I think, the power of this series, is that it really hits home, even though, of course, I have not lived through that experience. Like, and especially, as you already said at the start, like for some people from, from Holland, for instance, we don't have this big pivotal event in our recent history that sort of, you know, influenced everything that we've done. It's we've been quite living a quite relaxed, mellow life. <laughs> Obviously there's there's been moments of intensity. As you said, life is intense. But there's not been this sort of recent world history event or recent historical event that dominates everything. But I know about it. Uh, you know about, of course, the the fall of the wall, but also about Romania and the dictatorship. It 
a bit about the mafia in Italy. Maybe, you know, there's other events, of course, across the continent as well. But what I really, really love about the series is how it brings to life these events in a way that has has been done before. You can listen to podcasts about it that, as you said, offer quite dry, sometimes academic analysis of these events. Sometimes there's great storytelling about it, of course, but this combines, for me, actual personal stories with a creative outlet, mm. which music is. If you merge those two together, it is, yeah, musical journalism is something different. So I think <laughs> if you can be really, really proud of uh, what you've done there. Thank you so much. Um, also from Luke, yeah. <laughs> also for Luke. Yeah, it, yeah, it really it's, works. It's, yeah. The technique really works. Really uh, works. I can say this now. We've, we've started five years ago. And it really does something different because that's the thing. It's also not only personal and emotional. It's also very political. These yeah. are yeah, extreme wisdom layered. that it's people layered. are giving. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, honestly, like um, I was really blown away by it. So I hope, we hope that the people listening to this feel the same way. And please reach out to us if you have experienced one of these events yourself. Obviously, we want to hear about you. And if this episode or this story hit home for you what's the feeling that you want people to walk away with after listening to some of the episodes or all of the episodes and especially of course people that might have a personal connection to one of these events yeah we had a meetup in amsterdam where we played the episodes and people came to listen to them in group and afterwards so many people came to me and they said I recognize 90% of what these people are saying, but I don't understand it. I don't understand it because I'm not from Romania. I'm not from Ireland. How is this possible? So, sorry, so you yeah. say they recognize it, yeah, but they don't it. understand it. Yeah, they okay. recognize, I feel like Katinka. I feel mm. like Michael, but I don't understand why, because I don't share this this national history. I haven't lived something like that in my life. I Why? Why do I react so strongly to it? And I think that they react strongly to it because they are all people that have had to overcome a situation that didn't seem to have an exit route. Yet, they are still here and they've made a life for themselves. And whether you are rich or poor or black or white, this happens all the time. This is what humans do. They, <laughs> they take an impossible situation and come out of it one way or the other. This drive to forge a new reality with the people around you, not by blocking out with cancel culture people around you that you don't agree with, that don't want to join your new utopia. No, I want to shape and create a different reality because the one that I'm in right now is not working. Let's start to fight for each other. And I use the word fight because there is so much frustration and sadness and anger and rah, you know, like energy speaking from these stories. The energy of, you know, that's erupting when you're keeping a ball under the water for way too long. And I think in Western societies, the ones that I know are Belgium and Holland, we are very scared and easily intimidated by people that outer any sort of frustration, anger, failing, um, that are loud in general. Just being loud is already frowned upon, whether you're a man or a woman doesn't really matter. And I think we need the loudness and we need the fight in order to, first of all, for fun, 
<laughs> to feel that we are alive, <laughs> to feel that this is also part of our human expression of being alive. We don't need to temper anything down. And also, secondly, because everything is at stake all the time. Sounds a bit tiring when everything is at stake all the time. But I feel my life like this, like everything is at stake all the time. And for some reason, I'm still not in a burnout. And I think it comes from this wonderful drive to forge a new reality with other people. So I have two final questions. One, one is a bit of critique, you yeah. could say, even though, again, like as, as I've been saying, I love the series in all its layeredness. So one is a bit of point of critique and the other is a question. Well, it's called Millennial History, the show. It sort of says it's recent world history, but you've chosen to focus on events that mostly take place on the European continent. Obviously, you might have reverberations into the broader scale, but it's European history and it's mostly white history. Mm -hmm. If someone asks you about, okay, why do you call it Millennial History or World History and it's only about certain communities... Would you be open to broadening that lens or how do you, how do you view that, that yeah. potential critique that people could have? Yeah, we made this first European series because we had no money. <laughs> this is quite simple. Uh, we've only gotten our first funding half a year ago, but this is a four-year project already. So practically, we didn't have money to travel. And I would love to make a world series to all these underreported continents And I hope that people will listen to millennial history and say, we want more of this. Let's do truth and reconciliation in South Africa. Let's do the Iran-Iraq war. Let's do um, Hurricane Katrina. But let's not do 9-11 because, I mean, that's been overly done five times over. So I really, I really, really want to. But it was a question of money. And also, I think it was the Irish people that said, <laughs> yeah, Europe, a story of 70 years of peace, but only if you look at a few centralized states. And that really stuck with yeah. me. How much is there that we don't know about Europe and that it's not only about not knowing, but that we don't really care about. Wow. So my final question would be, mm. we talked at the start about how historical events could shape or how they shape. Mm. It's not even how they could, but how they shape generational identity, but also the layeredness of identity. And what we often say at Are We Europe is that there is no one European identity, of course. There is not one European story. It's more a patchwork. What do you think this series, in all its all the limitations it's had, of course, as you just mentioned, geographically, time-wise, you know, it's a certain period in time, certain generation you want to, like generational lens. What does it say? about European identity? I think within Europe, the dominant continent, the continent that colonized the rest of the world, the etc., etc., there are still so many underdogs. And because of that, they have developed, all of them, practical ways of dealing with massive shifts in identity, ideology, history, power, to be sensitive to power structures and what that does and to not take that for granted, who is wearing the police uniforms, for example. And by virtue of being the underdog and having lived that, they have skills that we are going to need like hell with all of the shifts that are coming to us 
because of climate change, because of migration, because of COVID, because of everything that's on the move. And I think we better listen to what they can tell us from experience. Yeah. And I think millennial history is full of lessons that will be very, very helpful in that way. Is that an answer? That is, that is an answer, absolutely. And nothing needs to be said about European identity, but I think, that, I think that was great. I would first like to thank Andrea for this inspiring interview and a little peek behind the scenes, a little listen, if you will. And if you haven't listened to all eight episodes of Millennial History yet, well, you should. We definitely recommend it. As you've heard in this interview, this European storytelling series covers different themes, each one captivating and moving in their own way. We've taken you through some big events in our recent history, from the Troubles to German reunification, all through this unique, musical, millennial lens. We hope you enjoyed it. This series has been produced by Resonate Productions, by Andrea Futz and Luke Dean, and was co-produced by Are We Europe? And we have much more for you to listen to. In recent weeks, we've been preparing a lot of behind-the-scenes interviews and other content, all related to our upcoming magazines. So be sure to subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. This episode was produced by me, Mick Tereorst, mixed and edited by Stefano Montali and Nezia Borkovic, production assistance by Malena Rachals, and additional support by Tone Foss.